Welcome back to Case of the Sunday Scaries. I'm Elise. And I'm Annie. And we are re-recording. And this one, I'm going to take full credit for, for those that have written us or the lovely people that have taken the time to write an Apple review and mentioned our voices. Thank you, first of all. But my voice tends to be a little bit quiet. And with our new microphones in the podcast studio, if I move even an inch away and I am a very animated talker, I get very excited when Annie's telling me these cases. (laughs) I got to play detective, especially with this one. I was almost doing like a charades trying to figure out this case. And if I move my mouth just an inch away from this mic, you can't hear a thing. So it was a very one-sided episode. Annie did a wonderful job, but the best thing about this is anytime that we do have to re-record, Annie always adds something new. And quite frankly, this case has a lot of twists and turns. So it's almost good that we're going through this again so that we can process the information a little bit better. So Annie, I love you. <laughs> Let's try this one more time. But before we get into the case, we have to talk about what has been all over the news. And that is Annie. Dun, 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 dun. We have a suspect in the Idaho murders. Not only a suspect, but someone arrested. We have a suspect who has been arrested. <laughs> yeah, you've really built me up and I just kind of dropped the ball on that one. <laughs> That's okay. We're not even going to say his name on this podcast because, you know, innocent until proven guilty. We'll see how that goes. We're just going to call him Idaho asshole for now because I feel confident in saying that much at this point. I was really worried. I talked to Annie when this first came out. Don't get too excited. This has been such a high profile case that what always worries me is that they're just trying to kind of satiate the public, right? Everyone is terrified. I mean, this man became a serial killer overnight. They didn't know what was next, really. Especially around the college campus, because parents were not sending their students back. I mean, would you? No, I wouldn't. But I think that even added more heat where it's like, okay, now we have a university. Some of the students aren't coming back. I don't blame them at all. I wouldn't. But it's just kind of extra fuel to really fire the investigation. And I'm super impressed and super happy that they have a suspect who has been arrested. Me too. I just want to go through this affidavit. I'm not going to obviously read it word for word. It's heavily redacted. But some of the stuff that's stood out to me is that, disgustingly, this man, Idaho asshole as we are calling him, potentially was stalking and casing at least the home, maybe not following the individual students, but definitely was around this home. Now, his phone never pinged the night of the murder. And we'll get to that in a second, my theory behind why. That to me, that's not evidence. It's almost evidence that he is the person, which normally it wouldn't be. But we'll get to that. But it showed what, Annie, like 12 times that he had been around their house. Yeah, I think it said at least 12 times between July and November which is a short period of time for someone to be lurking. And he, for those that don't know, was a criminology student, which is even more terrifying. And that's why I don't think it's that surprising he wouldn't have his phone with him if he was in the house that evening, because obviously during the course of his studies, he's going to learn a lot about how people get caught. They're studying criminal behavior, right? So it would not be smart of a man going through this type of study to make a huge mistake like bringing his phone to the scene of the crime. (sighs) And unfortunately, it's even more disgusting to me that if you guys haven't seen the Reddit post he made, he posted on Reddit, which makes complete sense for a sane criminology student who's doing research 
to post this. But in hindsight, he made a post basically asking criminals about their most recent events, how they felt afterwards, how they committed the crime. And now it just looks like he was studying how to get away with this. He was going the extra step. And I think he really was digging into the psychological piece because some of the questions on that survey was, how did you feel after committing the murder? He just was asking bizarre things, which it does make sense if that's his area of study. Hindsight's always twenty twenty, And this one, hindsight's like 100 to 100 for me because I'm like, oh my gosh, just gives you goosebumps. I even heard something, don't quote me on this, that his professor for this course, one of his professors was one of the people that got BTK, right? I believe she's the one who wrote the autobiography about him. So she was doing a ton of interviews with him. And there is reason to believe that he actually was able to communicate with BTK as well. What? Um, BTK's daughter came forward and was talking about the similarities. And they think because his teacher was so investigated in this autobiography that he had access. That's pure speculation. I want to make that very clear. I haven't seen anything super hard and fastened to come out about it, but they are talking about this relation. That makes me want to vomit. Again, a normal criminology student who's doing stuff like this to help prevent these crimes, it makes total sense. But in this case, it just, like you said, it gives me goosebumps. It's so much more eerie that He was basically paying to be trained, potentially, of how to get away with this. And I know it seems like for the whole nation who's been watching this case and so invested in it, it almost seems like, oh, it was a really long time from the time of the murders till when they arrested a suspect. But when you're talking about DNA evidence, getting everything like search warrants, affidavits, all of that, it's not that long of a time. And I am just so, so grateful if this is the man who committed these murders. And like you said, There's one more piece of evidence on this affidavit that we're going to talk about. It looks like they have their man. It just makes me so happy for the family. It makes me happy for that community. And also it makes me happy for whatever else this man could have been planning. Because I don't think when you go on a spree to this magnitude, four people in one evening, it's almost unheard of for that to be your like first crime, your starting out point. It's terrifying to think what was going to come next because this is a man who had planned Mm -hmm. it seemingly the other piece of the affidavit i am tapping myself on the shoulder a little bit because i was right detective (laughs) delbaum take a bow Well, the funny thing is, if you are a regular listener, you might remember a few episodes back, Annie asked me a question. That question was? I said, okay, Elise, so where do we go to find out information about someone? And your response was? The trash. And I said, or social media. But in this case, Elise, you were right. I was right. So they went to his parents' home. And I want to point out this was his parents' home, not where he was staying because I got some Instagram messages when we were kind of covering the press release for this and people were getting a little bit confused like, oh, is the dad involved? What happened was police went around 4 a.m. to my understanding and they went through the trash unbeknownst to the family. We all have our pickup days, right? So waited for pickup day, go out while everyone is hopefully asleep and they go through the trash to find anything like straws, food wrappers, anything that you would have DNA on potentially. And they found a match to the DNA profile that was on the knife sheath. They don't have the murder weapon yet, but the knife sheath that was next to one of the bodies has a DNA match 
to someone in the male side of Idaho assholes family. So that does not mean by any means that the dad was involved. It's just the males on that side of the family are going to have a very similar genetic makeup. But what I found so compelling was it was like 99.99999 on and on. What what was the word you told me in the other case? Septillion or something like that? Yes, because it reminds me, it reminds us both of a reptilian, a reptile. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, there's like 24 digits in that number. <laughs> it's very similar of how much of the population this rules out. So to me, again, I'm, I always try to err on innocent till proven guilty, but it's really hard to dispute DNA evidence, especially when the knife sheath, it does not, it's kind of believed at this point that that wasn't in the house. That was something that was brought in by the killer. Yeah. And also for our listeners who don't know, once trash is outside on the street, it's public property, correct? Yes. Law enforcement and investigators are allowed to go through your trash if it's outside. But we're not giving any ideas to any identity thieves. Don't no. be going through my trash. You guys shred, <laughs> right. shred any personal documents. You'll please. find a lot of uh, dog hair and elites in my trash. Let's oh, be that honest. Is for sure. I have to vacuum every day. So we'll see what happens with this case. He's currently in the middle of getting um, back to Idaho. He's there. I think he landed Friday night. But the only other piece I want to talk about, because it's being talked about so heavily on social media, all I'm going to say about the roommates is we need to give them grace. We don't know how we would be reacting in their situation. They're taking a ton of heat and we just need to be kind. And I truly think that there's a lot of information we don't know for a reason. Let's wait till, till the court and let's just give those girls some grace because luckily, number one, they're alive. Number two, they have been through a lot of stuff in the past six weeks. Oh, I can't even fathom. And to Annie's point, what you're speaking to is the fact that people are kind of questioning the roommates because in the affidavit, one of the roommates, again, I'm not going to say her name. We don't need to add anything to this, but she says that she saw the killer and that he was masked, sound like he had a hood on. It's not like she could identify much about him besides, you know. His bushy eyebrows was one thing. Yeah. And his body and weight and his bushy eyebrows. <laughs> yeah. That, if those poke out from a mask, yeah, that would be pretty prevalent. It said in the affidavit that she froze. He exited the home. Maybe he was caught off guard that she was even there. We don't know what happened. I don't try to get too into a criminal's mind and why they do what they do. I go into their backstory, but I'm not trying to put myself in the headspace of anyone that would do this to these young four people. But I can, in a limited capacity, put my headspace in that roommate of her locking herself in her room, of her not making any calls. People are giving her a lot of grief for that. But to Annie's point, you have to realize we all have different trauma responses. She might have just been scared to move, to make a noise, to do anything. Because what if this guy comes back? She doesn't know if he's just at this point. It sounded like she didn't know if he was a burglar, what had happened. So like Annie said, give them grace because this is one of those things that we talk about often on this podcast is you can't always judge someone's reaction based on what you think because, my God, I hope none of you have been through a situation similar where you would even have any idea what you would do in this scenario. And these are very young adults. I mean, they're teenagers, let's be honest. Going through a horrific event. Oh, terrified. Could you imagine it just coming back from the bar? You grab some food at a food truck and then you see this person? Like, don't pretend that you know what you would do in that situation. She did the right thing. She made a call later to 911. At that point, nothing could have been done. And this girl has been through stuff that hopefully none of us will ever, ever understand. She is not the person that perpetrated this. So it is not her fault in any capacity to Annie's point. And now I'll get off my soapbox. 
(laughs) (laughs) No, that was so true, though. So stay with us. I always try and post quickly, whether Elise is sending me articles, our listeners. I love whenever you guys send us stuff on Instagram. I'm so appreciative because sometimes you see it before we do. But stick with us on Instagram. We'll be updating this case as it progresses. I'm eager to see what plays out in court. Yeah, this is going to be, I wonder if they'll allow cameras into the courtroom for the trial. But I mean, we're a long way out from trial. My hope for this is that this guy has some humanity in him, which sounds crazy to think that he can. But let's just plead guilty and not put the families through having to see every little piece of evidence. I mean, I unfortunately, someone sent it to me and, and I thank you for sending it, but it was not something I wanted to see. They recently brought the mattresses out and I was like, this should not be something that the public is seeing. Of course, they have to process everything for evidence, but it was very clear what was on those mattresses. So I hope that I'm so far removed from this, right? We all are. And yet it still was a very gruesome image. So I don't want the families to have to go through that. So I hope for his sake, or excuse me, for the family's sake, he pleads guilty and skips the trial. But with people like this, they often enjoy the attention and the spotlight. So TBD. We shall see. Let's jump into today's case. I think I'm going to call today's case the Spreckles Mansion Mysteries. Before listeners start going, oh, it's one of those spooky season episodes. No, it's not about a haunting or paranormal events. But if you do want your fix, head back to our October episodes. We've got everything there for you from (laughs) Amityville Horror to Redheads to everything in between. But this mansion that I'm going to talk about is the site of not one, but two horrible tragedies. If Walls could talk, this mansion would have a lot to say. I do want to give a big trigger warning that this case involves suicide. If you're not in the right headspace, number one, I'm so sorry that you're not. Number two, please don't listen to this episode. It's going to be rough. We're going to talk some details. But at the end of the day, this is a really sad case that does involve potential suicide. And on that point, guys, we're going to be back every Sunday unless my quiet little voice ruins it again. (laughs) But we are back every Sunday. There's going to be cases that are more suited for you. This one, um, especially having already recorded this, I know that we're going to go into some details about the potential suicide because of the evidence that they found. So this is going to be a little bit more graphic in nature than we normally would go to when we're talking about something like this. So just be prepared. But I'm going to shut up and let Annie (laughs) get to this case because, you guys, this is is something else. It is. That's a good way to put it. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Before I dive into what happened in the summer of 2011, we have to start back at the beginning. It was a normal day at the Horizon Eye Specialist Center in Phoenix for 28-year-old Rebecca Zahau, who was a certified ophthalmic technician. On this particular day in October of 2009, a new patient walked in. He was tall and very good-looking, and he happened to sit down in Rebecca's chair. The two hit it off, chatting about their lifestyle and hobbies, which were both very similar. We all know that's a good common ground to start any kind of relationship off with. They were both health-conscious, active, and very family-oriented. 
The man's name was Jonas Shacknight, and he was the founder of Medisic Pharmaceutical Corporation. Elise, you and I know this company very well because they are credited with creating the dermal fillers, Restylane. Okay, stop throwing me under the bus. For the record, for the record, I only have Botox. (laughs) I am not going to lie. I cannot wait to get my lips filled again. That's one thing I'm looking forward to. I love Botox. I love filler. I'm all about that. Well, and if Hollywood and everything that we see on Instagram is any indication, this man, if he's credited for creating this or being the head of the company, this man is rich, rich. He is rich, rich. His net worth at the time was $3 billion. Casual. Casual pocket change. And he was completely self-made. Respectable. Absolutely. He lived in Phoenix, but had a vacation home in Coronado, California. This home was the Spreckles Mansion. I am foreshadowing a bit. Just to give a little bit of background on this mansion, it's kind of a historical site. So, Annie, we already established that I've listened to this, um, or at least her first version of this, because it always changes when we had to re-record. However, this house like was sitting in my head. I was like, I don't understand like why this Spreckles thing is coming up. And I didn't know if it was related to an old past murder, because this is in California. Well, it turns out, that after the first family who built and owned this house, they actually split it into four different sections. And that is why when Annie and I talk about this house and how it's structured later, it does look like separate houses. But guess who ended up buying the house and restoring it to one big mansion? Who? Danielle Steele. She's a romance novelist, a very, very famous one. I can't even imagine how many books. She has to have at least like 70 books. And I don't think that's why I recognize it. I'm still wanting to do some digging because there's something in that name that's just sitting weird with me. But just a little fun trivia tidbit that if you are a romance fan, you're on the wrong podcast. But (laughs) (laughs) But Danielle Steele was actually the owner for some time. That is super cool. I'm curious who else has lived there because, yeah, it's really well known, which we'll get into the Spreckles Mansion and I'm going to have Elise describe it in just a little bit. Back to Phoenix. Let's talk about Jonah because he was intrigued by Rebecca not only by her beauty, but by her charm and demeanor. Before he left the office that day, he got her phone number and the two made plans to go out on a dinner date. That dinner date went really well because shortly after, the two officially started dating. Rebecca and Jonah were a match made in heaven, but the two had very different backgrounds. Rebecca was a Burmese immigrant and one of four children. She was born in Falun, a small town in the Chin Hills of Myanmar. What the heck is a Chin Hill? Well, actually... Googled this location because um, I had no idea. It's located in the northwest region um, around Thailand and Vietnam. But the Chin Hills is truly this kind of village little town built into the mountains in Myanmar. It's beautiful. Okay, so it's not like us having our little butt chins. (laughs) The wrestling can hopefully fix. (laughs) No. Got it. Got it. Growing up, Rebecca's family was poor. All of the siblings slept in one room and they all had to pitch in to make ends meet. Rebecca's parents were born-again Christians, and religion was so important to the Zahao family. Rebecca's dad was heavily involved in politics, which was dangerous because Myanmar was living under a dictatorship, which we all know that can be really sensitive, especially when it comes to politics. Yeah, get involved and get in trouble. Mm-hmm. The Zahao family left the country and were displaced for a number of years. They were living all over, including India and Nepal. After years of displacement, the family made their way to the U.S. for a fresh start. While the rest of the family settled in Missouri, Rebecca moved to Phoenix, Arizona, and started her career at the eye clinic. It 
quickly became a passion for her and she learned that. So she went back to school and became certified to become a tech. To shed a little bit of light on how amazing of a daughter and sister Rebecca was, she sent around $400 of her paycheck back to her parents every month to make sure that they didn't struggle. A true gem. That speaks to some really tight family ties. Obviously, these are immigrants to a new country, and the fact that she's willing to strike it out on her own is commendable, but then also that she is working so hard in order to help her family speaks volumes about her character. It's really touching. After three months of dating, Jonah felt like it was time to introduce Rebecca to his kids. First up, he had his two teenagers from his first marriage. Teenagers are never going to like the new girl. Rebecca was over 20 years younger than Jonah, so that kind of is also a little a little dig. I don't know if they were confident she was going to stick around, but they did not like her. Well, they probably thought she was kind of the flavor of the month, right? Or when a man has that much money, especially an older man, there's certain stereotypes that go along with it. But if you guys look at pictures, and Annie, of course, will post this to our Instagram at a case of Sunday Scaries, they look like a beautiful couple. I mean, she's Drop dead stunning. gorgeous. She's stunning. He also is very good looking. Yeah, he's handsome. Yeah, that you definitely see on the street and you do a double take. He did create Restylane, right? <laughs> so- <laughs> he better be beautiful. <laughs> yeah, he's looking pretty youthful, actually. It doesn't look like there's a 20 age gap. This isn't like an Anna Nicole, you know, situation where the man's in a wheelchair rolling down the aisle. But <laughs> <laughs> they they look like a beautiful couple. But I can certainly understand being protective of your parent and thinking she's just after his money. Absolutely. The one child who adored Rebecca was Jonah's six-year-old son named Max. And Max is from his second marriage to a woman named Dina. The feeling between Max and Rebecca was so mutual. I saw one photo of her and Max, and they both just looked so happy. And you can tell that she really kind of stepped in and adored Max, which at the end of the day is what I think, you know, Jonah probably loved seeing that come out of the two. Jonah and Rebecca's relationship continued to grow. And after one full year of dating, He eventually asked her to quit her job and move with him to his vacation house in Coronado, California. His plan was to move there for the summer to be closer to Max because Max's mom, Dina, also lived in the area. And it kind of just makes sense, you know, after a year of dating, maybe we move, we see what the next step looks like. But for Rebecca, that was a huge step. I've got to ask, would you be able to not have a job? I don't think so. And that's what. And before everyone comes (laughs) for us. There is no shame in like the hardest job in the world is being a parent. Being a step parent is equally as hard, but I don't think I could do it. I don't think I could either. And that's what Rebecca really struggled with because number one, she loved her job. And number two, she sent her family money every month. So she was kind of torn. She's like, I get that this is the next step. I love Max. I want to be in Coronado, California. Like, hello, California summer. But also she worked really hard to get where she was. So she was kind of torn. Jonah listened to her concerns. He totally agreed about the money, especially. He said, no worries. I will actually write you a check every month for that amount for you to still send back. So after a lot of probably coercing and pros and cons, Rebecca decided to make the move. So she quit her job. And in the summer of 2011, the couple moved to Coronada to live in that big, beautiful mansion. Coronada is located on the peninsula off the coast of San Diego. Have you ever been to the area? 
Elise. I know you're a Cali girl at heart, aren't you? <laughs> for a time I was. I saw a very great man who lived in San Diego for a time and visiting him was the best. It's a very like walkable city. It feels small in some ways. I don't know. To me, it's like the perfect. It's San Diego is pretty amazing. But this house, Annie. It's stunning, right? Yeah. If you guys have heard the rumors about Aaron Spelling's house, creator of like every TV show we loved in the 90s, Annie, you wouldn't know anything about that, but (laughs) he had a gift wrapping room and this house looks like it probably would have one because it is huge and there is tons of beachfront property right in front. So yeah, this is a dream home. It's a dream home and it's also a dream area. So it's super rich, that lifestyle of like what you think whenever you think California, this is it. Every house in this area is valued at at least $2 million. The Spreckled Mansion is kind of that house that actually sold in 2007 for $13 million. And to Elisa's point, it has 27 rooms. It is also not just in one house. It's like an estate. Yeah, like I was talking about earlier when I looked it up. Because looking at this house, it doesn't look like just one house. It looks like there's a whole bunch of guest properties or something. Come to find out they had separated it into such to make it easier to sell. And then good old romance novelist put it right back together. But this place is huge. But I don't know what the heck you would put in 27 rooms. How many, how many bathrooms could you possibly need for three people? A lot. It's a flex, I think. To have like the house on in, you know, Coronada, California, right on the beachfront. It's just stunning. The California summer started off great. Rebecca helped Max go to soccer. She made him meals and she played with him while Jonah was at work. The two were getting closer and closer, which really irritated Max's mom. She divorced in Jonah. The two were on really good terms, but she wanted Max to be with his dad, not his dad's 32-year-old girlfriend. So I can see how there would be a little bit of tension between the two. Um, I don't think that's uncommon and And I can kind of speak to this. It takes a while when you have a new, I'm not a mom, so I can't speak to that side of it, but I can certainly empathize why you're trying to figure out your role as a pseudo step parent. You're the girlfriend at this time, right? So it's like, can I discipline? Can I, you know, can I go watch his things at school? Like, what is my role here? But on the other side, it would be very difficult, I imagine, because I myself can be a little jealous at times. So I'm just trying to emphasize or empathize and put myself in that role of seeing your young son kind of give attention to a motherly figure other than you would be a very difficult adjustment. Absolutely. Regardless of all this tension between Rebecca and Dina, Rebecca seemed really happy in Coronada. This happiness ended on July 11, 2011. Rebecca's 13-year-old sister, Zena, was visiting from Missouri, and the girls were getting ready for the day while Max played. Rebecca was in the downstairs half bath and Zena was taking a shower when all of a sudden Rebecca heard a very loud noise coming from the front room. She goes running into the foyer and she saw Max laying on the floor face down in the entryway of the house and next to him was his Razor scooter kind of laying on top of him. Next to them was the chandelier that had been ripped from the ceiling during you know, what we're assuming is a fall. Max is at the bottom of the staircase and this this staircase was three stories high. So it was a big area and house that just is a big drop. Rebecca starts screaming for Zena to call 911. So she does. And Rebecca starts giving Max CPR. An ambulance comes and takes Max away. And because this incident involves a minor, law enforcement immediately show up to the scene. 
They start asking Rebecca questions, and she's pretty vague with her answers. I mean, she is an absolute shock. I cannot imagine running out from the bathroom and seeing someone that you love dearly on the floor in that kind of state. It's just unthinkable. What Rebecca is able to tell law enforcement is that she was in the bathroom, she heard commotion, ran out, and found Max laying there. She said that while she was giving him CPR, he whispered the word ocean, which is the name of the Shackney family dog. This already sounds a little bit sus to me because I am no medical professional, but I know, I think we all know, you do not perform CPR on someone unless you do not have, a, you know, it's like a faint pulse to no pulse, but certainly if they're not breathing, you have to start like rescue breaths. It would be very hard to be unconscious and whispering names of your favorite dog. You're putting on that detective hat because that comes into play later. I 100% agree trash. with you. <laughs> <laughs> it's always the trash. Meanwhile, Jonah has been notified of his son's fall and he contacts Dina, Max's mom, who meets him at the hospital. Right away, it does not look good for Max. He is hooked up to a ventilator and they can already tell that he has severe damage to his spinal cord and brain. Immediately, Dina. Remember, she's not the biggest fan of Rebecca. She starts pointing the finger. She says that Rebecca was watching Max. Max was in her care while this happened. Dina is rightfully so in a horrible place. And she wants answers for what just happened to her son. And someone to blame. And someone to blame, exactly. But Jonah kind of puts an end to it. He has Rebecca's back, as he should. And he says, you know, you should be grateful that Rebecca was even there because she was able to give him CPR. And without that, who knows what would have happened to, to little Max. Rebecca catches wind of Dina's anger and she calls her older sister, Mary. Mary living in Missouri. She starts to explain what's going on. Mary recalled Rebecca saying over and over again, Dina is going to kill me. Rebecca also let her sister know that she wasn't sure if she was going to have any money to send in the next coming months because now that Max was in the hospital, she wasn't sure if she was going to be getting that $400 check from Jonah. Just a lot of uncertainty around Rebecca's situation, which I'm sure was super stressful. Because of Max's condition, his uncle Adam flies to Coronada to be with his family. Adam is from Memphis, Tennessee, and he's the brother of Jonah Shackney. Rebecca picks up Adam from the airport while she drops off Zena, who's going back to Missouri. So they're doing a little swip swap at the airport. Doing a little swip swap. And she has plans to go to the hospital the next morning. She plans on visiting Max and bringing Jonah a fresh pair of clothes. And this is all confirmed by Mary because Rebecca once again called her older sister trying to find out you know, what should I do? I'm in this weird position. Here's my plan for the next morning. I just grabbed Adam. All that kind of stuff that you just fill your sisters in on. Absolutely. Rebecca even told Mary to let their mom know that she would be calling early in the morning on the way to the hospital to fill her in. Rebecca and Adam arrived back at the Spreckled Mansion. Adam goes to be in his guest house, one of many. Yeah, one <laughs> of the 27 rooms. And Rebecca went upstairs. At the hospital, Max's condition takes a turn for the worst. Jonah calls Rebecca to give her the grave news, but her phone goes right to voicemail, so he leaves a message. The voicemail he left is heartbreaking. He said that even if Max makes a recovery, he will never walk or talk again due to the damage his spinal cord and brain received. Remember, Max is six years old with his whole I, life ahead of him. I cannot even fathom. Everything's going great for Jonah. He is on top of the world, right? He has his hot young girlfriend. They seem to be in love. He has this palace. It's not even a mansion. A palace right on the beach, height of his career. And then in an instant, 
everything is pulled out from under your feet. It's so sad. Well, our story is about to get even sadder. The next morning on July 13th, 2011, Adam walks from the guest house to go to the main house. And on his way in, he notices something horrible. This is a big trigger warning. It's going to get a little bit graphic. There's a body hanging from the balcony outside in the courtyard. The body is being held up by the neck by a red rope, and the body is completely naked. The hands are tied behind the back, and the feet are bound together also by a red rope. There is a blue shirt that has been stuffed into this person's mouth, and that body is that of Rebecca Zahaus. Adam called 911, and on that call, Adam is heard asking, are you alive? He cuts the rope. He removes the blue shirt and he begins CPR. The ambulance arrives on the scene and it's very apparent that Rebecca has passed away and there's nothing that they can do. Just to describe the scene a little bit more, there's dirt on her feet, black paint on her breasts, and a little bit of blood around the inside of her thigh. From the looks of it, rigor mortis has already set in and they determine her time of death was around 3 a.m. I'm going to pause here and just have Elise describe these ropes and knots that were around Rebecca's wrists. And her feet. Before I go into detail about these binds and the rope binds around her, I want to make it really clear, guys. I made the mistake of Googling this case. Don't do that. Annie will, of course, put pictures up as we're talking about them, but there is a ton of crime scene photos that is strangely available online that has Rebecca and parts of her body in it. So just just don't Google. Okay, now let's go back to these binds. I I am not trying to make light or laugh in any way, shape, or form about this, but the pictures, and, and maybe you'll understand when Annie puts these on Instagram, it kind of looks like some BDSM rope binds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very complex and intricate. Yeah, and not only that, I do want to point out her hands and feet were tied. Her arms were tied behind her back, but her arms and feet are not tied together. So she's not hogtied, um, as people would put it. Gosh, we really need a new name for that. But these are not just something that would be easy to do whatsoever. I mean, this would take some skill to do it in front of you, but it's going to take a hell of a lot of skill and quite frankly, some like serious ambidextrous stuff to be able to do this on your own behind your own back. We'll get into the knots in a little bit, but just for our listeners, you know, to kind of understand the bizarreness of this scene, I think it's really important that, you know, we talk about the knots. Adam calls Jonah, who's at the hospital with Dina and Max, and he says, pretty point blank, Rebecca is dead. She committed suicide. According to Dina, when she asked Jonah what happened, Jonah makes this kind of bizarre movement. He takes his hands, he pretends to grab a knife, and he shoves the imaginary knife into his stomach. And then he says, Asian honor. It's rough because, number one, it involves race, which is always sad. But Elise, talk a little bit, because I know we talked about this in our first recording, a little bit about what you know. When Annie first described this to me, I went, ooh, that's one, a really interesting way to describe it and choice. And I'm not going to say I understand this because this is very much like racial profiling. But if we go back in history, I think it's called Harry Curry or something along those lines. I don't remember the name off the top of my head. So listeners, you can fill me in. But it's basically going back to like samurai days. And when you did something to dishonor yourself, to dishonor your fellow samurai, to dishonor your country, your family, whatever the case is, that's where we get the term falling on the sword because they would 
disembowel themselves and unalive themselves in that manner. So while I don't understand why he chose that, especially talking about his Asian girlfriend, I'm just going to say that. It's a choice, but I also don't know what's going through this man's head after being in the hospital for so many days with his son. But still, it's an odd, odd choice. It is. Jonah really thinks that Rebecca committed suicide because of the guilt she felt around Max's condition, especially after listening to the voicemail he left where he said, if Max recovers, he's never going to walk or talk again. Jonah calls Rebecca's family and he is pretty vague, just like Adam was. He says Rebecca has been found dead and that she committed suicide. Back at the house, Adam is taken inside the house for questioning. He explains his morning. He says he got up, he got dressed, and he was walking inside the main house to look for some coffee. And that's when he saw Rebecca hanging from the second floor balcony. Coronado police quickly clear the house. They take pictures and they contact the sheriff who brings in the homicide investigation team. The lead detective is on the scene within three hours of discovery and she already kicks off her investigation. It is apparent to everyone there that everything about Rebecca's death is suspicious. It's apparent to me as I sit here in Westminster, Colorado, that her death is is suspicious. And it's probably apparent to our listeners, especially after Elise kind of describes intricacy of the ropes, her death is suspicious. Here are a few more details around the crime scene. First, the rope that was used to tie Rebecca's hands and feet is the same kind of rope used for water skiing. Jonah had a boat, so that makes sense. That same exact red rope had been in their garage previously, so the rope kind of checks out. Inside the guest bedroom upstairs, the red rope had been tied to the bottom of an antique iron bed frame and stretched across the room to the balcony where the body had been flung over or went over. It's interesting to actually hear this back because I'm catching more details. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like when in cartoons, I'm thinking like Rapunzel let down your hair kind of moment. Again, I'm not trying to make light of this. It's just how my brain's processing like the visuals of this. So... The rope is tied to herself, hands, feet, and then, unfortunately, neck. And then it's tied to this bed frame that she somehow, probably because it's iron, knew it would hold her weight. And then she has to, like, jump over the balcony. Exactly. It's odd. Why wouldn't you tie it to the balcony? We see that in movies all the time, right? Like, the kid sneaks out by tying their bed sheet all Mm -hmm. together and then climbs down the window. But it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It's about to get more confusing. On the floor next to the bed, there are two knives. There's a steak knife with blood traces on the handle, and then there's another smaller knife. There's also a cell phone and drops of blood found in the bathroom floor that connected to the guest room. Remember, this is not her main bedroom. This is a guest room. Oh, okay. The next part is really ominous. On the guest bedroom door, there's a riddle of sorts. It reads, quote, she saved him. Can you save her? End quote. Okay. Again, that is very ominous. Strange. Because I look at that and obviously English, well, I'm still working on my English, but English (laughs) is my first and only language, unfortunately. But she grew up in a different country. I look at this and I read, she saved him. Can you save her? And I go, why those pronouns? That's very strange because you would think if this was her writing this, I couldn't save him. Can you save me? Exactly would make a lot more sense. 100%. So is that a case of just English not being your first language or? That's a good question. I'm not 100% sure. I never really read any articles where she 
had an issue, the language barrier. Um, but that could be. I just also think to your point, she would put, I saved him. Can you save me? But she not in third person. Him. So you would think that she, well, I guess she did save him in a way by doing rescue breaths, right? And CPR. I don't know. The more I look at it, the more confusing it gets. Because yeah. if she is writing this in her head, getting that voicemail, she's thinking, I couldn't save him, right? That would be what I would exactly. think would be the normal thought is you would feel this like, he was under my care. He was my responsibility. I couldn't save him. Like that would be the main thing that you would be holding on to of like, what could I have done differently? But yet it's she saved him. Can, Can you, you save, save her? her? On the floor, there are also two paintbrushes and acrylic black paint. That acrylic black paint and paintbrushes came from Rebecca's art supplies. There's also a book about witchcraft. And in that book, there's a drawing of a person who was tied up, hands and feet tied with red rope. Um, really similar to how Rebecca was found. I'm not sure if that's just a weird coincidence. I'm not sure was what that book. Was it open to that page or it just happened? It was just in the book, in the room. I think it was just in the book. I never saw where like they walked up and it was open to the page. It was just a book about witchcraft and that drawing happened to be in there. Mm, that sounds like a little bit of a reach to me. Yes. They do testing on the room, as they should, and the only fingerprints found anywhere are that of Rebecca's. Oh, right. Okay, so you said this was not her main room, because I'm thinking, well, that is very suspicious if that was her room with her mans. Mm -hmm. It's one of the many guest rooms in this palace. Well, if you have that much money, you probably have a cleaning crew that would get rid of pretty much That's any so speck true. of dust, dirt, or debris in that all 27 rooms. So true. So that lends to potentially that this was suicide starting to look like that more for investigators. But I don't want to rule out Adam yet because he's not out of the water. Supposedly, he was the only one on the property when this happened. He discovered the body. He called 911. So law enforcement want to do their due diligence. They take him down to the station and he takes a polygraph test. And this next part just gets really odd to me. First, the results are inconclusive. Not surprising. I don't trust polygraph tests. At least you're shaking your head no. no I don't think you they, do either. They're a stress test. It's, you know, that's why they're not admissible in court. And this would be a very highly stressful situation. I think the only good thing polygraph do is maybe not rule people out. But if someone, you know, fails it miserably, they look more into that person. But just like a good rule of thumb, don't agree to take a polygraph mm -mm. test. Don't do it. The inconclusiveness isn't what stood out to me. It's that while he's taking this test, he randomly blurts out this statement. And he says, yeah, I was pleasuring myself to porn that morning. And this statement is like unwarranted. It's out of the blue. It's odd to me, but I don't know. Okay. What do you think? Well, first of all, aren't polygraph tests just yes or no questions? Yeah. And he gives a full ass statement about Jerking off <laughs> about some self pleasure. Well, I'm, you know, I'm not going to yuck someone's yum, right? Whatever. Amen. Amen. But um, okay, but maybe he is just word vomiting, really trying to give <laughs> a very, very accurate description of his whereabouts at every step of the hour that morning. Um, well, I don't know. I always say don't judge like what someone does in a stressful situation. But again, that's that's a choice. <laughs> I'm sure the polygraph test giver was like, okay, yeah, mark uh, Sir, that down. I just wanted a yes or a no. He was like, keep it simple, Adam. Don't overcomplicate <laughs> it. Because Adam's polygraph test was inconclusive, law enforcement have nothing to hold him. So he actually flies back to Memphis, which is odd. That to me seems 
way more concerning. Maybe he just had seen enough in that house and was thinking there might be, if he really, it sounds like he believed it was suicide. So there wouldn't be like this murderer on the loose situation, but that's a pretty traumatic event to find someone's body. So maybe he just wanted to get the hell out of Dodge. But with all the other stuff, you have to think, is he getting the hell out of Dodge because he went through trauma or because he caused trauma? Or because he just told someone he was pleasuring himself on accident. He's like, that's embarrassing. I got to (laughs) go. I got to flee the state. That same day, Rebecca's family is watching the news and they see truly the unthinkable. The news channels are showing the Spreckles mansion. And on public television, you can tell there is clearly a body laying in the courtyard. There's no blankets over it. There's no privacy. There's no nothing. The only thing they did to make it like somewhat, I don't even think that this is viewer discretion advised is they put that little blur effect over her body no okay you blur booty cheeks on bachelor in paradise that's my reference point you put the little black box up but for her family to have to see that is disgusting and i know we all have to some degree or another a morbid curiosity that's we wouldn't have true crime podcasts if we didn't want to understand these things but i hope to god they sued the hell out of that news channel Because that is disgusting what people are willing to do to get the scoop, the views, right? This is someone, whether this was suicide, whether it was murder, whatever the case might be. It's awful. She deserves some respect in death. Agree. And this actually is the tipping point for her family because her older sister, Mary, who plays a big role in this, was adamant that, number one, Rebecca would never do that. And number two, she would never make her parents see her like that. This goes back to how Rebecca was raised, very family-oriented and also very religious. So this just completely infuriates the family, and they make the decision right there that she did not kill herself. During all this commotion, as if the day could get any worse, Jonah and Dina get the news that no parent should ever have to receive. Six-year-old Max is brain dead, and they decide to take him off life support, and he passes away on July 16th, just five days after his fall. Obviously, I feel for Dina, but I cannot imagine what is going through Jonah's head this day. He loses his girlfriend that morning. Rebecca passed away on the 13th. This is on the 16th. Not that it makes it any better, right? It's three days later. And because of these weird circumstances into these two deaths, the San Diego Police Department decide to launch two separate investigations. They're going to look into Rebecca's death, but also take a deeper look into Max's. Max's investigation is the first one I want to talk about because to me, it's a little bit more believable. It's heartbreaking, but it is believable. The crime scene investigators recreate the scene, and here's what they think happened. They think that Max was riding his scooter on the second balcony landing. He somehow lost control. Maybe Ocean, the dog, got in the way because he supposedly whispered his name. They think that Max flipped over the railing and then grabbed the chandelier on the way down. They are calling his fall an accident. Rebecca's investigation is up next. The first piece of evidence they look at is her phone. Investigators look at her phone records from the past year to see what kind of state of mind she was in. They actually found out that she was in a terrible state of mind. She was texting her friends and family things like, I feel empty. When I'm not thinking, I'm crying. No amount of money is worth what I'm going through. Just really sad statements. That's concerning right there of like where her mental state was even before this accident or hopefully supposed accident with Max. Maybe the gilded life wasn't quite as beautiful as it looked from the outside. Right. And so roughly the timeline would be around the time that she quit her job and moved. That was 
not quite a full year, but I kind of wonder if she regretted leaving the eye clinic, packing and up everything like a and sense moving. Of- purpose i mean that's right. for me what work is i like leaving the house going doing something i would say earn my rest even though that is a horrible toxic trait of myself <laughs> of my own but i could understand that and maybe it had nothing to do with her relationship with jonah it was just i don't know what i'm doing with my day and yeah. i'm dealing with this dina lady who hates me and the teenagers who hate me and, and i'm in a new city house and, and yeah i don't, I don't know, know anyone. anyone right jinx <laughs> They also noticed something that's kind of key. They noticed that Rebecca had called her voicemail around 12.50 a.m. on the morning that she was discovered. So they are thinking that she did, in fact, hear the voicemail that Jonah left about Max's condition. They believe that she was deceased by 3 a.m. Is that what you said? Correct. They had done their due diligence in the room. They found no other DNA at the crime scene. There was no signs of forced entry. And so her death was called unusual and unique. But investigators decide to focus only on the facts. And because of that, her cause of death is hanging and her matter of death is suicide. You know, I just had a thought. This is a little off subject. But I wonder, and maybe this didn't even come up in your research, but I wonder what time Jonah's brother, Adam, right? Mm -hmm. What time Adam landed? How much window of opportunity would he have from when he landed? Because right now we believe he's the only person in the house besides Rebecca. How much time had gone by? That's a good question. Well, if we find the answer, we'll we'll add it mm-hmm. to um, Instagram. But that is where my head goes because this is even from 1 a.m. to 3 a.m. This is a lot. There's a painting. There's a potential like researching in a witchcraft book. I'm going to kind of throw that out in my head. That just doesn't seem like a real big piece of evidence. But If she were to do these bindings herself, these very intricate bindings, that's a lot of time it would take to master something like that, especially behind your own back. Agree. I didn't think about that before, but yeah. Hmm. I'll I'll see if I can find the answer. We'll post it on Instagram. Awesome. So after these two investigations happen, this is when the Shackney family starts acting, I don't want to say suspicious. Poor Joan has been through everything. And no one should go through. No one should go through. And I also think if there's ever an investigation to someone in your family, you should probably get a lawyer. Um, You shouldn't talk to the public or the press or anything like that. But Jonah hires a lawyer for his brother, Adam, and he also hires bodyguards to to follow him around. I don't know how I feel about this. This obviously is not good for his company. The fact that there was a woman's body found, there's supposedly an investigation going on into your brother, the stocks tank. But I'm not sure if that extra precaution was because of a business fear or because he was worried about what was going on at the mansion. Well, let's think here, though. This is a man who has a very significant net worth, right? Three billion with a B. And if I learned anything from watching the Harry and Meghan documentaries. (laughs) Wow, I'm making some really odd references here. But. The amount of paparazzi and things that were around their home was startling for me to see. But then you go back to what you said earlier, that these news crews were trying to get the scoop on this story so much. And I get it. Like, this would be a very enticing because it is. I mean, we're talking about today because this is such a bizarre case. A little boy passes away a few days later. The girlfriend passes away. Like, that's odd. That's going to catch headlines. However, they are trying to one-up each other to the point that they are showing her deceased body on air. And to me, that means helicopters, probably. Yes, definitely helicopters. 
Definitely people kind of sneaking in the side, taking those. To get that picture. Yep. We've seen it in other cases where people want to capture the facial. I remember in the John Bonet case, especially, people were trying to get every picture of the parents they could to paint it in a certain light. So maybe the bodyguards were for that purpose, just general security of the home so that he could grieve in peace without having people standing on his you know, fence trying to take Zoom pictures of him. Yeah, that is a very valid point. So maybe it was just because he wanted some privacy. Poor guy deserves it. Dina refuses to accept the outcome of Max's investigation. She really believes that Rebecca had something to do with her son's death and that Rebecca wasn't completely truthful when recalling the events of the day. Dina decides to independently hire a medical examiner to look a little bit closer into Max's death. And when the medical examiner does that, she discovers a few odd things. First up, with the flooring on the second level, it was actually deep, thick carpet. When you think about a little Razor scooter, those things are not getting super fast on deep, thick carpet. So she doesn't think that it would have ha- that Max would have been able to reach a speed to flip him over because of that carpet. That's just one small piece he she have, discovers. Like, the velocity. Exactly. The other thing is that Max was short. He was only six years old. The railing was tall. So the other question is, how did, how did he launch himself over? On accident. See, and here's the thing I, to me, and what the hell do I know? But to me, it almost makes more sense that this carpet would be deep because, yes, I understand that speed wouldn't be in it. But if it's a higher carpet, like a shag type carpet, and you know, we're going back a couple years here, so it's very possible it was. Oh, yeah. I could see where the little scooter, like the front tire, right? Am I thinking the right thing? A razor scooter is like the little the two little skateboard with a wheel on the front and the back and, and like handlebars. little handlebars. Yeah. So imagine what would happen on like a normal bike when you hit something. Your front tire stops, which certainly if he was going and the dog got in the way, whatever, maybe his front tire got stuck in that carpet and it flipped him. Could be. You wouldn't have to be going very fast to get off balance on one of those things. I'm agreeing with what you're saying. The other thing that's interesting is that multiple injuries on Max's head, eyelid, and shoulder were found that corresponded to different events, not just a fall. You mentioned earlier about how someone who's receiving CPR probably couldn't say the word ocean, and you are spot on. Due to the extent of injuries to Max's throat, he wouldn't have been able to say a single word. So when Rebecca said that, she was either remembering incorrectly in that state of panic, or she was just not telling the truth, which once again, back to being in that moment, talking to law enforcement, I don't know what would be going through my head, but that physically was not possible for him to say ocean. Well, she might have just been inputting like something comforting. Could have been. Or even maybe subconsciously giving a reason for this. Right. So the medical examiner determines that, yes, the cause of death was brain damage, but the way in which that brain damage occurred was actually a homicide, not an accidental fall. The medical examiner lays out this theory that Rebecca was getting onto Max, she was disciplining him, and she picked him up when he wiggled out and somehow he flipped over the balcony, falling to his death. I get that Max is six, but you need to look at a picture of this woman. I mean, she's toned. She is fit, yeah. but she is tiny. She's tiny. She's like five two. So I'm trying to think like what kind of, unless there's something really violent going on in that house, what kind of discipline 
would bring this six-year-old boy that's probably close to her height, I'm not even exaggerating, bring him tall enough to lift him over this ledge that we already established is pretty high. I mean, that's abuse. That's not anything but abuse. And it doesn't seem like there had been any history, right, of abuse? None. None. That seems, I mean, a little bizarre. It's a stretch. Right. So while this investigation into Max's death is going, we have another one going, which is Rebecca's, because her family is furious at the cause of death and matter of death. This goes back to their really strong um, religious beliefs. They don't believe that she would take her own life. They also found the riddle and the rope, all that kind of stuff, just really bizarre. So the Zahal families hire an attorney named Ann Brimmer. They ask her to reopen the case as a homicide, not a suicide. And what Ann and her team found was very strange. A forensic expert is brought in, and the first thing that sticks out to him is how Rebecca was bound. He said that she would have had to climb on top of the balcony, bound with her wrists behind her back and her feet bound, and she would have had to fling herself over. So to our earlier conversation, we're trying to think, like, is this like circus delay? I mean, yeah, and especially, like I said, Please don't Google. You'll see stuff Mm -mm. you don't want to see, unfortunately. But when I looked more into this after Annie and I first talked, her feet, it's not like they were loosely bound. No. They were arch to arch, like bound together. So to think that she would have to like hop, literally, you couldn't walk in the way that she was bound. She would have to hop over to this ledge and then being a very petite woman herself and her hands are bound behind her. I don't know. I guess you could fold over the ledge depending on how tall it was and go over. I know I'm getting really graphic here, but we almost have to. It's a graphic case. To dissect how bizarre this alleged suicide is. It is very odd. And the thing that we haven't even talked about, now I'm going to play, well, it's like devils on both sides. Let's say that she was suffering some very poor mental health. Obviously, compounded by what happened with Max. What whatever happened with Max, it would be very hard to know that everyone is blaming you even if it was an accident, he is in your care at the time. So I wonder, it'd be interesting to see if there's any other cases like this, but I'm sure we've all heard cases of people that have attempted suicide, fortunately survived it, and they all, I've never heard someone say like, "Oh, darn." They all go there's this moment of, "Oh no." I shouldn't have done this, this panic that happens. And I wonder if she was in such a desperate state that she's using all these tactics to make it impossible for her to survive this. That's along the line of thinking of why there was a blue t-shirt in her mouth, because investigators think that she didn't want to be able to scream out. So you're not far off from what they're thinking. But then how long does she have this t-shirt in her mouth? Because the t-shirt would have to go in first Mm -hmm. because her hands are behind her back. I'm trying to see it from both sides and I keep flip-flopping back and forth because I have never been in a mental state like this. But I can imagine that anyone, even someone not suffering from depression, anxiety, anything like that, going through feeling responsible for the potential death of a six-year-old, because she obviously didn't know he had passed away at this point, would be crippling to anyone's mental health, right? But at the same time, just logically, the amount of thought that would have to go into actually executing this as a suicide does not make sense to me. Because if you're in that moment of sheer mental breakdown, of panic, of everything else, I don't think that you are setting this up so elaborately. Right. Well, if you're on the fence, just wait for this next piece because you're going to be like, all right, Annie. 
First, I have to mention that she was found nude. This man had been in his field for 56 years, and he said that he has completed over 20,000 autopsies. He could not recall a single case in which a woman committed suicide naked. That just stood out to me for some reason, because I wouldn't think much of it. I mean, I don't want to be seen naked. (laughs) No. And Rebecca is religious, right? Yeah. So there is a certain amount of shame, especially in our culture. And then if you tie in like religious factors into modesty and everything else, that also doesn't make a lot of sense. Right. So the Zahal family, they get this evidence, they get the feedback, and they have a lot of reassurance that Rebecca did not kill herself. The family and attorney decide to do is to exhume her body and have a second autopsy completed. Could you imagine making that decision? I can't. I think that that was just like one of their last pieces of hope. The autopsy took place in Pittsburgh, and this is where you're about to switch from the on the fence to one hard side. The first thing they looked at was that there was four subscalp hemorrhages found. This is bleeding on the undersurface of the scalp. Police are claiming that Rebecca hit her head on the way down, but whenever you look at the balcony, there's no structure where she could have done that. Sorry, I'm going to interrupt you a lot. This case is just, we're just going to title it Elise Interruption. No, it'll be, it'll be interview with the detective. <laughs> if she is on the second story balcony, I don't know how long this rope is, right? Could she have, oh, I wish you guys were inside my brain right now. It's working so fast because I'm going, no, 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 no. And then I forget that I'm not actually speaking. <laughs> I'm just like creating this like crime scene detective board in my brain. My first thought was, well, what if it happened when, not when she fell, or I'm going to use the word fell here. You know what I mean? But what what if that happened when he cut the rope to get her down? But then immediately I go, well, no, because she at that point had no blood circulating. So she wouldn't have a blood hemorrhage. She could definitely have like skull fractures, but she wouldn't have blood pooling in those areas because her heart's not pumping anymore. Right. That's a good thought. I never thought about it like that. But what the forensic expert is saying is that direct trauma from an object is the only way that those hemorrhages could have happened. And she would have to be alive. Exactly. Next up is the examination of the neck. First, yes, Elise, women can have Adam's apples. I Googled that. (laughs) Not every woman. Annie and I had a full debate about this. I had no idea that women could have Adam's apple. And then we just stared at each other for a good like 30 seconds touching our necks. And I was like, I have one. And she's like, I don't. And I'm like, you're lucky because I got made fun of mine. So, but back to the Adam's apple. (laughs) I'm still looking. (laughs) Because we're going to have another 30 seconds of us just rubbing our necks. Like, I can feel mine. The Adam's apple and trachea were intact. In hanging, those body pieces would be damaged. The other thing they discovered during this neck investigation was that injuries were found under her jawbone. And you receive that when someone is strangled, not hung. Because if, you're, if you go that way, it damages it. If you're strangled, it's a different kind of injury. I wonder if she had any like particular, I'm going to say this word wrong, but particular, particular, um, any hemorrhaging behind the eye. Did not find that out. Because generally that happens when you're suffocated or Mm -hmm. strangled, something like that. But I don't know if it also would happen in a hanging. All of this is getting so odd. It's very confusing because I can see both sides still. Right. It's odd. And because of these findings, the forensic expert is adamant that she did not commit suicide, that she was strangled and thrown off this, thrown off the side of the balcony. You're doing this case again, and I'm still... It's like I'm hearing it for the first time. It's like watching a documentary and picking up stuff that you didn't pick up before. Because there is so much to unpack here. 
There's so much, it's right? Just Whenever you think so you have your bizarre. idea set, it is. The new report was presented to the San Diego Sheriff's Office, and they have one request. Can you please reopen the case and look a little bit deeper into it? Immediately, that request is denied. Investigators said they're keeping the case as a suicide because the only DNA found in the room was Rebecca's. They're leaning heavily on this fact. I think personally, the Shackney family money and power and just overall persona had something to do with them not wanting to open it. I also think they didn't want to be embarrassed and say someone committed suicide only to find out it wasn't. I think a lot of factors play into it. But at the end of the day, they said, nope, we're not reopening it. Yeah, you're probably right. Like we all know money and power do a lot of things that they shouldn't be able to do. But I also wonder with the speculation, the news coverage of this case, again, kind of like we were talking about with the Idaho murders, you kind of want to seal it up with a bow as quickly as possible and be like, nope, there's nothing further here. Especially in Coronado. It's a bougie area. Like they don't want their residents worried about anything. Sure. And you think about the DNA, and I said it earlier, like that doesn't mean a lot to me because we don't know what time he arrived at that house. That's the only person that was supposedly there at the time. So potentially the only person that have any motive for this that was present. How much time did he have in that house? I don't know, but that's it. That's my case. I joked that the case is over because y'all know cold cases are one thing I'm really interested in, but this is not the end of it. Years pass and it's now 2013. Over the past few years, the Howe family had been ramping up for something big. They want two things. First, they really want suicide removed from from Rebecca's death certificate. And second, they want whoever did this to Rebecca to face the music and be held responsible. Two things I think are very, makes sense they wanted this. With all of this weirdness around this case, yeah, absolutely. They have their eyes set on three people. First, Adam Shackney. Duh, my eyes are also set on you. Allegedly. Allegedly. We're covering our butts here. <laughs> Second is Dina Shackney. Yeah, we are. We are. And Dina's twin sister, Nina. Yes, they're twins named Dina and Nina. As a refresh, Dina is Max's mom. Identical twins. They look just alike, too. It's weird. Just when you think this case doesn't have enough odd things. The Zahal family are suing all three people for the wrongful death of Rebecca, and they are taking them to civil court. You might be wondering why Dina and Nina were included, and that's because an eyewitness placed the twins at the mansion the night of the murder. The twins denied that they were there, and the accusation toward the twins actually turned out to be false because video footage shows that Dina was at the hospital with Max and that Nina was at Dina's house with a witness. So she has an airtight alibi. They actually both do. One is a video and the other is a witness saying, we were here. So the lawsuits against the twins were dismissed, but it's continuing against Adam. In March 2018, almost seven years after the death and five years after suing Adam, the civil trial is set to begin. The Zahal family is asking for $10 million. What's important to keep in mind here is Adam was being sued. He was not being charged. It's kind of a different court case, which I learned a few things on. What's similar is that there are still 12 jurors who are going to decide the fate of if he's innocent or guilty in Rebecca's death. The defense team consists of Dan Webb, a very well-known defense attorney, which, fun fact, you were talking about, I always find out more information. I did. Turns out Donald Trump actually called Dan Webb during this trial, and Dan Webb's like, no, I'm, I'm busy. I can't help you. Wait, what? Just a little side note. Yeah. Wow. Turned down future President Trump. Wild. Turned down for Trump. Right. 
And then along with Dan was just a team of attorneys all paid for by Jonah. On the opposing side of the courtroom, you have the Zahao family, represented only by Mary, her older sister, and the family attorney, a guy named Keith Greer. As you can assume, the courtroom presence is very off balance. One side is full of all these well-known people, and the other side is just two people. The Zahao family attorney named Keith, he has this theory that he kind of brings throughout the case. His theory is that Adam's motive was anger around Max's situation, but also that it was sexually motivated. He kind of jumps in and says that he believes Adam attacked Rebecca, pleasured himself, back to that statement in the polygraph test. And then he also ties it back to the black paint being found by Rebecca's breasts. He then says that Adam staged the scene to look like the it was a suicide. The black paint from the door, right? The black paint that was also found on her breasts. It's the same black paint, correct? It's the black acrylic paint. Someone wrote the message on the door, but also when her body was discovered, there was black paint around her breasts. Keith brings forward a key witness who lived a few doors down from the Spreckles mansion, and she did a video testimony that was played in court. She stated that on the night Rebecca passed away, she heard screams coming from the mansion around 11.30 p.m. What's frustrating is that that exact same key witness had approached the San Diego Sheriff's Department, but because she was elderly, police dismissed her account and said that she was confused. So picture this. This investigation is happening at this well-known mansion. You're a neighbor. You come and you say, hey, I actually heard screams on 1130 the night this happened. And police say, you're just old and you're confused. We're going to play the like elderly card. Let's also think that most likely a woman that is elderly is probably in bed by 1130. So if she's woken up by a sound of screaming, I think she probably knows what she was woken up by. Good point. Keith then calls a crime scene expert to the stand, and this woman is very vocal and says there was a lot of evidence that was never disclosed publicly. First, we go back to this. There's no DNA. There's no DNA. Places that were commonly handled had no DNA, including the doorknob to the guest room and the paintbrushes. So when she's saying there's no DNA, Rebecca's DNA was not even on these areas. It looks like someone had wiped it down. Secondly, we have the knots. Keith brings on a retired charter boat captain from Long Beach who describes himself as a forensic knot analyst. And during court, he does a demonstration. I'm sorry. Could you imagine if that was on your resume? (laughs) I am a forensic knot analyst. Let me do my job. Like, I love it. But during trial, he did a demonstration and he explains to the jury that the knots found were very intricate and he describes them as the overhand and clove hitch knots. He says it's very common to have these knots when you're using boats kind of in that nautical field. The thing that Keith Greer does that was wildly, I feel like, kind of inappropriate, they actually bring out a mannequin who looks just like Rebecca looked, long, dark hair, same body. And he is demonstrating on this mannequin who even Mary in an interview said like it was quite shocking to see that she knew it was coming. It wasn't like he blindsided her. But she said it was really hard to get past that this looked just like her sister and all this stuff is happening. What Keith was trying to do was show the jury like there's no way Rebecca, who was so petite, could have had her hands tied around her back and could have bound them the way that they were. I don't get why he did it, but I understand in a sense. You do. You got to make the point. I don't know why they needed to have so many personal features. Like you don't need hair to show that. They could have had someone just come up and stand there and do it. They didn't need to have a rigid mannequin. I think that's 
a little bit much. It's too much. But those courtroom antics leave an impression. We're all humans. That leaves an impression on the jury. Yeah. The other evidence that the forensic expert talks about was the two knives that were both processed for DNA and fingerprints. Rebecca's fingerprints were found on one of the knife, but the prints were not consistent with how you would hold a knife. So whether you're right or left-handed, typically if you're holding a knife, your thumb's on top. Please picture the knife being completely upside down and the fingerprints kind of being wrapped around the knife. And I know that's confusing to picture, but the conclusion is that the prints were consistent with Rebecca holding the blade behind her back like she was trying to cut herself out of the oh, rope. Oh, I see. Okay, so I'm doing this. This is where like my game of charades Same. happened. <laughs> They're like little <laughs> chickens. Our hands yeah, are this just, would like, be an interesting chilling. one to have on video and probably a little gruesome, to be honest. But it makes sense. So listeners, unless you're driving, pretend like hold a pen, pencil in front of you. You have your thumb out to protect the rest of your fingers and because, you know, you wanted to grip on this knife slash pen. But then if you move it to the back and you put the blade where it would need to be to cut something away from your back, right? You don't want the knife facing towards your spine. If you put that blade there, then your pinky is actually going to be closest to the blade. Correct. So it's an odd way to hold it. On the smaller knife, there is blood DNA found, but there's no fingerprints. It's odd. From the looks of it, what they are saying is that blood had been applied to the bottom, but there was no blood on her body. The only kind of blood Rebecca had was she was menstruating. So the assumption that is said during court is that the knife was rubbed against her vaginal area as a way to essay her. Another expert's brought in, and he's actually a handwriting expert. He said that people typically write, if you're on painting on a wall or you're writing on a wall, you're going to write at shoulder level. The riddle, she saved him, can you save her, was at a 5'11 height. Rebecca was 5'2, Adam is 5'10. He also noted that all writing leaned to the left, Rebecca's handwriting leaned to the right, but Adam's leaned to the left. Adam also has a very stylistic M that matched the writing on the wall. Immediately, the defense disputes all of this. They object. And they did a good job about planting that seed of doubt into the jury's head because one thing the handwriting expert used was Photoshop. So a juror might hear Photoshop and think, oh, it was edited. In reality, the handwriting expert was putting the M on top of the M in Photoshop. But as a juror, you hear it and you think, oh, he just edited that. So he was kind of discredited when that happened. Next up is the defense's case. Jonah is called to the stand. Poor guy. I feel bad for him. He has been through so much. Um, I actually walked, watched the court video and it truly breaks my heart. His son is dead and his girlfriend is dead. It's just too much. Jonah stands by his brother saying it's inconceivable that Adam could ever do anything like this. The main question that's brought up, once again, are those knots. And it's kind of asked of Jonah, okay, can you replicate what you would do on your boat? Because remember, Jonah has a boat. Jonah kind of does this half ass. Like tying a boat to a dock type thing. Right, sure. You do the little loop-de-loop. -loop. Not the knots found on Rebecca. He is then shown a picture of the knots found on Rebecca's wrists and feet. And he says, I'm not sure. I've never seen Rebecca tie a knot like that, but I don't know. He also stated that when they would go out boating every week, Rebecca was the one in charge of tying the boat up to the dock. But then says, those aren't the kind of knots that she would tie. Meanwhile, her sister Mary is sitting in court. And she's pissed because Rebecca had told her that they had taken the boat out like twice that whole summer. 
So Mary knows that so Mary knows that Jonah is lying. And this was a while after Rebecca had passed away. This is like seven years later. So he could have just honestly been confused. I don't know. Next, Adam takes the stand. Fun fact, in a criminal case, the defendant does not have to take the stand. But in a civil case, they do. That was news to me. Adam straight up lies on the stand. So this guy works on the Mississippi. He is a tugboat captain. Right. So a tugboat captain obviously you're around a lot of nautical things like boats and knots. He claims that he does not know how to tie knots on a boat, nor had he ever seen the knots tied on Rebecca's wrists. And everyone keeps saying these are nautical knots. It's odd. He's also very vague. Of course, when asked, did you participate in the death of Rebecca? He says no. He makes it really hard on Keith whenever Keith is questioning him because he's very vague, nonchalant. His body language is kind of off. He's just like, I don't remember. I don't recall. Which, fair, it was a long time ago. But that image, I just feel like you would never leave your mind. So you would remember certain specifics from the day. But also, we talk about how the mind is a powerful thing and it can, you know, delete things. His whole court area was sketchy to me. So it's finally the end of the court. In his final words, Keith, the family attorney, gives his idea of what happened. He says that Rebecca was in the shower. She turned off the shower. There were drops of blood in the bathroom as a reminder. Um, she was menstruating. And then he says that Adam confronts Rebecca. Something happens. There's a scuffle. There's an argument. Something happens. And Rebecca is struck on the back of the head by Adam. She's then subdued, bound, gagged, and sexually assaulted. He said that Adam then manually strangled Rebecca and killed her before hanging her body up and staging it as a suicide. In the defense's final words, they have one point to make. There is no evidence, no evidence, no evidence. He said that's facts. There was a full investigation into her death and it was ruled suicide. And the defense is saying that's it. I don't even know like why we're here, truthfully. That's the end of the hearing. In a civil case, only nine out of the 12 jurors need to decide liability. So after three and a half hours of deliberation, a verdict is reached. Elise, after you have heard all of this, what do you think? Remember, throughout this whole case, again, I've listened to this twice and I'm still going flip-flop back and forth. I want to add something really quick, if you don't mind, because why not interrupt you for the millionth time? One thing that we didn't... <laughs> Poor Annie, thank you for putting up with me. This is good. It's like a... We're trying to solve it, okay? We're trying to get to the bottom of this. But here's one thing that surprises me that doesn't come up. So let's go back to this shower theory. If she was in the shower, why would her hands and feet, and I saw the crime scene photos, it's not like they're just slightly dirty. They're very dirty. Like someone that has been running barefoot around outside. Is it possible that by overlooking that, they kind of did even more of an injustice? Because it would make sense if she's attacked and running from this guy. Because if you think that the motive is him getting retaliation from Max. That would be one thing. Not right, obviously. Mm -hmm. But if there's this sexual component, her being nude, her being approached in the shower, there's blood on a knife, that is very strange. But let's say he approaches her when she gets out of the shower. She's immediately feeling threatened. That doesn't become a revenge murder. That becomes a sexual murder, right? That's about control, possession right. of someone. 
So if she's running away from him, if she's in the shower, you would think that her hands and feet would be clean. They found these droplets of blood in the bathroom. Then how did she get dirty again? That is such a good question. I mean, yes, her feet certainly could have gotten dirty. We don't know what the balcony looked like. They're by a beach. Maybe the balcony was like sandy or whatever. And she's hopping along to commit this final act. But how do her hands get that dirty? Because they were very, very dirty. It would make more sense if she was naked and, and running from something. You know, you stumble. You This house is like God knows how many floors. You're trying to get away from this situation. That to me, it's it's strange that they didn't focus more on that part of the evidence of we know she was in the bathroom. We know that she was nude. How did she get re-dirty after taking a shower? They wanted their book closed, right? I didn't think about that the first time. So as a jury member for the dirt and the binds, I'm going guilty, give her the money. And the jury's decision was dun, 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 guilty. They said that Adam committed a crime against Rebecca and killed her. And in the court video, it's really sad because Mary starts crying, her older sister. But then also Keith, the family attorney, he also starts crying. It's just a lot of emotions. So after this verdict, the family now has this renewed energy. And they go back to the sheriff's office, once again, asking for one simple thing. Can you please reopen this case? The sheriff's office does a quick review of the court findings and they say, nope, we are not changing anything. Rebecca died by suicide. So frustrating for the family. A few years later, in July of 2020, the family of Rebecca Zahau planned to file a new lawsuit against the San Diego County Sheriff um, named Bill Gore, and they are seeking records from the investigation of Rebecca's death. The family's attorney was still Keith Greer, and he announced his plan to file the lawsuit on the ninth anniversary of Rebecca's death. He said, we are filing a lawsuit against the sheriff for his failure to provide the family with documents they have requested. Her sister, Mary, also spoke at a news conference and said, I would like the public to really know what happened behind the scenes and Sheriff Gore is full of lies. This was a biased investigation motivated by power and wealth. This is nothing but racial and socioeconomical discrimination. If Rebecca was a white, wealthy woman, we would not be standing here. Justice has not been served for my sister yet. So this big press conference is held. They say they're suing the sheriff. But nothing happens. No one budges, and the Zahal's case never makes it to court. Recently, this past July 2022, the Zahal family dropped the lawsuit against Bill Gore, who is now the former sheriff. So he's no longer the acting sheriff of San Diego. Attorney Keith Greer told CBS 8 they dropped the lawsuit against Gore because there was nothing else to gain from him in the case. Right. He, can't, he doesn't even have access to those reports, I bet, at this point. Exactly. He has nothing that, there, nothing that he can do. The family is now turning their attention to the medical examiner trying to get the cause of death on the death certificate changed from suicide to at least undetermined or homicide, which I feel like is more than fair. There's enough shadow of a doubt Adam has been found guilty by a civil trial. So all they want is just to at least put undetermined. It really bothers them about that suicide. Keith did say if they're able to get the cause of death changed, they're going to go back and push for a criminal case. He said the goal in all of this is they want Adam Shackney held criminally responsible for Rebecca's death. Keith said it's frustrating because no matter how, lo how loud we scream or who we talk to, people tend to turn and look the other way. It's a challenging thing to take on, but it's the right thing to do. I just really like this attorney. I think he has a good heart. He's been with the family for years. 
I mentioned earlier how this Howe family was suing Adam for $10 million. They ended up getting like 600000 I think they were awarded $5 million. Well, maybe after attorney fees. Mm-hmm. I think they were awarded $5 million, and then the insurance company of Adams actually ended up paying $600,000. And Adam was kind of shocked by that, but that's where the money stands. Um, so today, they're still focused on petitioning the San Diego County Medical Examiner's Office to get that cause of death changed. I am sending truly all my love to the Zahal family because it's just a fight they've been fighting for de- for over a decade almost. And there's enough weird stuff here. And going back to kind of my point about if Adam did this intentionally or just in the heat of the moment, If there is a sexual component to it and it's not just a passionate like revenge for his nephew passing away, if there's a sexual component to it, then you have to realize that this is a different kind of dangerous man, right? 100%. He has been proven innocent. I mean, I guess, no, he hasn't been proven innocent. I forget. So this is not like, I keep going back to the OJ Simpson trial, which I know is two very different things, but just OJ was found innocent, then went to civil court, was found guilty. He has never been tried for this because they ruled it a suicide. So he still, yeah, could have criminal charges pressed against him. And I think it would be in the public's best interest to want this case looked more into because if there's any sexual component to it, then Rebecca most likely would not be the only person, right? Yeah. All they have to do to your point is just reopen it and take a little bit closer look. Look at the dirt. Look at the knots. Look at the weird missing DNA from things that should have DNA on it. That riddle still is haunting me. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. It really doesn't. So I didn't give our listeners any closure on this case, but I will keep any everyone posted as the Zahal family continue on their mission. But Elise, what's coming next week? Well, we are continuing the mini series about interpartner violence really focusing on harassment and stalking. And I just want to say a huge thank you to everyone that gave me the privilege of sharing your stories back to me. It's not something that I take lightly. And of course, all that information will never be shared. Just kind of shows me yet again how prevalent this is. And it was very frustrating to read some of your stories and see similarities, not only in the pattern of the abuser, but also just it not being taken as seriously as it could. So upcoming, we are going to be talking about the case that kind of inspired me to talk about this at all. That will be next week. Then we also are following up and closing this series out with an interview with someone who I have the utmost respect for. If you are familiar with psychology in Seattle, he is a couples counselor. He is and a professor. He has been through, my goodness, like all steps of his career and worked with different people, including trying to rehabilitate abusive people. So he is someone that can shed a lot of insight. We're going to be talking about warning signs that you can look for as you maybe are entering the dating field that you might just notice some red flags and be more aware of those, but also for people to understand a little bit more about why these things happen, not to excuse any of these behaviors, but We all know I like to try to figure out a why if we can. And then also, if you have a friend or a family member, like how to approach them from a place of love and and help them see maybe what you're seeing from the outside. So I think that will be a really beneficial way to close this out. We have been hinting over and over (laughs) and stating at this point (laughs) that we are going to be on YouTube. I promise it is coming. (laughs) We got to get everything situated. 
<laughs> no, we keep we keep like building up for it. And then like a technical thing happens. And we said it before, we are not audio and um visual video. People. Yeah, I can't imagine video engineers. Video. Yeah. But guys, we're trying. We're fighting the good fight. And the, the <laughs> my favorite saying is nevertheless, she persisted, and that is poor Elise, who texted me and was like, I was up till three thirty trying to fix the auto. I'm like, girl, we're re recording it. It's yeah, all right. It's- I think it was better the second time. I do too. I think we got because I, this case is so twisty turny. It was kind of nice to hear it once and then be able to process some of the information. And then, sorry, interrupt you fifty million times because my <laughs> no, brain is going. Oh, wait, I have another idea and another theory. My thing is, if you're thinking it, the listeners are thinking it. So I always appreciate that input. Well, we're all armchair detectives on this podcast, but um. As always, guys, we will be back next Sunday. We are really hoping that the next phase of this podcast will also include visuals, but I am no longer going to jinx myself because what I realized is we made one key mistake, Annie, when we said that our next episode was going to be on YouTube, and that was not realizing it was Mercury retrograde. (laughs) Oh, until like what, January 26th or something? Yeah, so... Yeah, I saw that. We're trying. We are trying to... like fight the cosmos to get this going (laughs) and i promise it is coming soon i'm just no longer going to put a definite date on it because um unlike mr forensic not detective i do not have audio visual engineer in my resume (laughs) but we are trying our darnest that will be coming soon and with all that said we love you thanks for putting up with us we are trying our best to make sure that we are giving you not only quality content um for your little ear holes but also soon visual content as well. But with that said, until then.